Thank you, worship team. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible or device, to turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be there in just a few moments. For those of you uh, joining us online, welcome too. If you're new to Woodside, we often go through books of the Bible, and today we are starting a four-week series uh, in the book of Colossians called Above All. And before we get into this letter, I want to just give a quick uh, overview and context of the letter and then how this letter written 2,000 years ago has anything to do with your life. So Colossians chapter 1, if you could find that. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. He was in Rome. He was in prison. It's um, known as a prison epistle. So the Apostle Paul, a real man in, in history, uh, was imprisoned near the end of his life twice in Rome. This is the first time he's in prison, and he writes this letter. Now, how did this letter come about? Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, saw the risen Christ. At one time, he was a persecutor. He tried to shut down the Jesus movement. There were many claiming to be the Messiah in the first century of Israel. Shut it down until he sees the risen Christ. He has this encounter with him. And Paul realizes that Jesus really is the Son of God, that every word Jesus said really is true, and that there is good news for everybody because of Jesus. So Paul then takes that good news throughout the Roman Empire, throughout uh, the Middle East and into Europe, and he has what we know, uh, three known missionary journeys. And on his third missionary journey, he goes to uh, the city of Ephesus, okay? Now, if you were to look on a map, it's in modern-day Turkey, and it's on the coast overlooking, uh, what's the sea there? It's the agency uh, overlooking towards Greece. And so for three years, it was the third most significant city in the Roman Empire. And he spends three years there, and you'll find this in Acts 19, but he goes there, he speaks in the synagogue for two months. Um, there's some pushback against uh, him, uh, Paul claiming Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul leaves the synagogue, goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and we're told he preaches for two years daily in this lecture hall. He's teaching the Word of God. He's sharing the good news about Jesus. Now, there was a man from Colossae, which is east of Ephesus. It's south of Istanbul, a very modern uh, city today in Turkey. So he's from Colossae. He goes to Ephesus. He hears the good news about Jesus, um, and he gives his life to Jesus and becomes a Christian, goes back to his hometown, Colossae, shares the good news, and others give their, their lives to Jesus, and a church is started in Colossae. Uh, twice Paul is, or twice uh, Epaphras, his name uh, is mentioned in this letter. Epaphras starts this church and things are going well, but eventually over time, there are some challenges to the gospel, to the good news. And Epaphras doesn't know what to do. He's kind of in over his head as a pastor. So he goes to Rome. He seeks out Paul in Rome. He met Paul uh, previously in, in uh, Ephesus. At the, at the lecture hall, but now he goes to Rome, and he's like, Paul, what do I do? And so Paul then writes this letter to the Christians in Colossae. So Epaphras goes to Paul, Paul writes this letter. Now, what's the letter about? Why is he writing this letter? What was the problem of this church in Colossae? In the first century, 
Epaphras, like Paul was saying, Jesus rose from the dead. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It's the good news. And by the way, if you're exploring Christianity, you're not sure what you believe, um, we believe the gospel, the good news, is the greatest news you'll ever hear in your life. It's that Jesus came and lived. He died on a cross. He rose again the third day. He's alive today and coming again. And if you ask him to forgive you of your sins because of what he did on the cross, he will forgive you. You'll have a restored relationship with God and you will have eternal life. So Epaphras is sharing that good news in the church, but in time, some false teachers started to get into the church. In the first century, on the Greco-Roman landscape, you would find uh, temples and shrines to a host of different gods. There were all kinds of different beliefs and what, who God was and what heaven was. And four groups started to make their way into the church. The first group, uh, we would uh, call humanists today, they were saying, yes, Jesus is, is fine, you can believe in Jesus, but in addition to Jesus, it's about us. We determine our destiny. Man is the measure of all things. We're the center of the universe. So talk about Jesus, but it's about us. A second group that, that made its way into the church were legalists. And there are different influences that these came from. But the legalist said, Jesus is fine, but you need to do this. You need to obey God if you want him to like you and find favor with you and to keep favor with you. So you need to keep these rules, these regulations. You need to observe these traditions, these feasts, these festivals. A third group were the mystics, and they came in and said, Jesus is fine, but you need to have this, these secret mystical experiences. Next week, we're going to talk about the worship of angels, where you're caught up, and, and, and there's something more than just Jesus. Jesus isn't enough. And then there's a fourth group, and they're ascetics. And they were coming in and saying, you know, God is against any pleasure. He's against fun. Um, and so what you need to do is you need to not just deny yourself of things, um, but you need to deprive yourself of things if you want to be close to God. In fact, self-flagellation uh, was, was introduced to the church where if you can harm yourself and experience pain, that would draw you to closer to this God. So Epaphras, he doesn't know what to do with all of this, these ideas and teaching coming into the church. Isn't it good today that there's no false teaching that's trying to get into our church? Right? right? Nothing's changed 2,000 years later. All of these, this false teaching. Epaphras goes, Paul, what do I do? Paul writes this letter. And what he does in the letter, here's the spoiler alert, okay? Four chapters. What's the answer? Here it is. Jesus is supreme. And Jesus is sufficient. Paul lifts up for them to see Jesus, his supremacy and his sufficiency. And he says to them, Jesus is above all of these other ideologies and religions and worldviews, and Jesus is enough. He's enough for your salvation. You don't need anything more than Jesus. He's enough for your life, ultimately. You can enjoy good gifts, but even if all you have is Jesus, he is enough. And so he's going to lift up Jesus, and you'll find, and I'm going to encourage you, um, there's four chapters in uh, Colossians, that in the next four weeks, you would go through the book, all four chapters each week. Whether you're a fast reader or a slow reader, it's probably 15 to 30 minutes, and just read through the book. You'll find the first two chapters to do with doctrine, the last two chapters to do with practice. This is what Paul does. 
He doesn't start with, hey, if you're a Christian, you know, be kind, be loving. He starts with, behold Jesus. Here's the doctrine. Here's the truths about him and you. And then he gets into the doctrine. But as you read those chapters, the four chapters, you'll find the word all uh, about 30 times. I didn't count. Maybe somebody wants to count this week. But you'll find the word all because Paul is talking about the allness of Christ. He is supreme and he is sufficient. And so for you, as we begin today, I want to ask you, how big is Jesus in your life? Because there are people that would say, Jesus is just one of many options. If it works for you, that's fine. But, you know, Jesus is fine, but you need this. How big is your Jesus? Is he at the center of your thinking, the center of your life? Is he in his rightful place? And sometimes we say, hey, make Jesus Lord. But the reality is, we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. He rules over all. You acknowledge that. You submit to that. You bow to that. So my hope for you at the end of this series is that you will have a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then that you would have a clear picture of who you are, of who you are in Christ, your identity. And I will just say this before we look at the text, that if you're here and you're stressed out at work, or you're here and you've got problems with someone in your family, extended family, or you're here and you're dealing with a physical illness or some struggle, maybe you have a child and, and, and something is going on there, okay, the best thing you can do is to put Jesus in his rightful place. Because when he's at the center of your thinking and you're talking to him, all of these other things can find their rightful place. So today, may we all behold Jesus and worship him. So as we begin this first chapter, we're going to read through all 29 verses. Paul's going to start by saying to these believers he's never met in, Col in Colossae. And he's going to say, man, I heard the news that you guys heard the news about Jesus, the good news, and that you put your faith in him, you're Christians. I'm just celebrating here, even though I've never met you. He says, I'm going to pray for you. Actually, I've been praying for you. And then he's going to lift up who Jesus is and what he's done and who they are. And then he's going to talk about why he's suffering and about his life, that his life is all about Jesus. So may, may God speak to you this morning through the teaching of his word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So Paul writes the letter, Timothy's with him, and he's writing it to the, to the people, holy people in Colossae. Now notice two things about them. First, they're holy, and secondly, they're in Christ. Those are both theological truths. Okay, you need to understand that. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus and belong to him, you are holy and you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. The theological doctrine is union with Christ. He's got you. Okay, greetings, the traditional greetings of grace and peace from Paul. And then he then shares with him, I am celebrating the fact that you're Christians. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. The gospel, the good news about Jesus has come to you. You've responded, you're Christians. And notice the triad, 
faith, hope, and love. It's, it's in a different order here. But when you get and understand the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you in your life, you will have faith in Christ Jesus. You will have a love for God's people. And you will go through life with a hope, the hope that's stored up in heaven for you. If there's anybody here that is hopeless this morning and they're in Christ, you need to realize there is a hope stored up for you in heaven. Paul continues his celebration, verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from, notice here's the first mention of Epaphras. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Notice that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is about grace. It's about God giving you a gift. It's about God's unmerited favor towards you. Why are you a Christian? Nothing to do with you. All to do with God's grace in your life. He gave you that grace, that gift. So Paul's celebrating. Then he then shares with him, I'm praying for you. You've come to Christ. I'm praying that you'll grow in your faith in him. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Paul is praying for these Christians that they would understand the Lord's will. We just had a series, Hearing God's Voice, and if you missed that series, I'd encourage you to listen to it. But God's will, he makes his will known for your life four ways, through his word, through godly people, through circumstances, and through his spirit. And uh, we talked about having a peace or not having a peace and how God's spirit and ours, there's that unity. And so we go forward, Lord, I believe this is what you want me to do. So Paul's praying that they would know God's will, that they would live a life worthy of this God and all that he's done for them. He continues asking things, uh, verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. He prays for these Christians, oh, that your lives would be overflowing with good works because of your relationship with God. Oh, that you would go deeper in your knowledge of God with all the the stuff going around about God, know that you would go deeper in the true knowledge of God and that you would be transformed by his power, that you would experience just his strength in your life and that you'd have endurance and patience. And then at the end of the prayer, he says, oh, and I'm praying for you too, that you will just be so grateful for what God has done for you. What has God done for you? If you're a Christian, look at what he writes at the end of his prayer, verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's pause for a moment there. Paul's painting a picture of a spiritual reality that we need to understand. He talks about two kingdoms. As you read your Bible, you will find two kingdoms. It's the spiritual realm. And if you're here and you're like, ooh, that sounds a bit odd to me, you know, Twilight Zone, 
Does Star Trek fit in there? Somewhere, okay, it's something out there, right? But, but Jesus taught there are two kingdoms. When we look around and we see the evil in our world, we say, oh, how could people be so evil? But behind that evil, there's a spiritual realm. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, you're either in one of two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of light, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the son he loves, or you're either in the dominion or the kingdom of darkness. And we are told in a comparative passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us here, every one of you, was in the kingdom of darkness. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we all in the past were dead in our transgressions and sins, following the ways of the world and following the ruler of the air. Who's the ruler of the air? Satan. We can't see him, a real spiritual being, that we are following him. So all of us at one time were in that kingdom of darkness, dominion of darkness. But because of what God has done for us, we're now in the kingdom of his son. Kingdom, two kingdoms. Kingdom speaks of a king and subjects or king and citizens. So in this kingdom is the reign and rule of Jesus and in this kingdom is the reign and rule of the evil one. And Paul writes, you, you were in this one, but now, because of the good news, you are in the kingdom of the son he loves. Notice, who was it that qualified you for the inheritance of his holy people? It was God. Notice who rescued you from the dominion of darkness. It was God. Notice who brought you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. It was God. When you understand that God in his grace opened your eyes so that you could receive Jesus, you cannot help but thank him every day. It's the greatest gift in your life. And Paul's praying, oh, that you guys would be grateful that you get who you are. That's your identity. You are in the kingdom of Jesus. And so I want to ask you right now, who is reigning and ruling in your heart is jesus the one that's at the center of your life and you're trying to do his will and to please him uh tuesday night it was mentioned we have a family night um uh, for if you're if you have a parent and you have children and the the topic is keeping jesus at the center of your of your home of your family in a very busy world and i will say this uh to all of you parents um you do not want your kids thinking that you are reigning and ruling in your home. You do not want your kids thinking that your spouse is reigning and ruling in your home. And if you're a single parent, that, that you're the one reigning. You want your kids to know that Jesus is reigning in your home and that mom, dad, they're doing the best to do his will. They're trying to please him. If you want a healthy home, get Jesus at the center. I am so glad for, for my three kids that I wasn't reigning and ruling. I'll tell you that, okay? Jesus, bowing the knees to him. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is I'm, he's praying, oh, that you'd be grateful for what God has done for you. And then now he turns, and in the midst of all of these worldviews and ideas, he's going to lift up Jesus, his supremacy, and his sufficiency. So let's look in verse 15. And I'm going to walk through this uh, passage of the letter, and uh, then there'll be a summary slide. So for you note-takers, you can uh, get the points on a summary slide. So verse 15, the Son 
is the image of the, the invisible God. Talking about Jesus, he is the image, the word means to impress upon. It's not simply that Jesus um, uh, represents God. Jesus is the manifestation of God. That Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. So one day, as Christians, we're going to see Jesus. In fact, if even we're not Christians, we're going to see Jesus. But when we see Jesus, we're going to see God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Jesus is God with a body. He became one of us. He is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. He is supreme over his creation. Now, some uh, religions would say, look at this and say, oh, right there. See, there's one of the passages that says Jesus was created. But notice Paul doesn't say the first created over all creation. He says the firstborn. That term in the first century, as particularly among the Jewish believers, when they thought of firstborn, they thought of first in, of, in importance. It was a position. It was a place of honor. So, for example, as you read your Bible, you'll find that David is referred to as the firstborn. Was David the first brother to be created? No. He was near the bottom. But he was first in position, in honor. Similarly, you'll find Israel being referred to as the firstborn. Was Israel the first nation? No. But they were in the place of honor. So when he uses this term, he's talking about a position, that Jesus is in the position over his creation. Notice, for in him all things were created. That he has the highest place over creation because he created all things. Let's pause for a moment here. Everybody got their thinking caps on? Okay, try to follow this. The only uncreated thing is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And science confirms what the word of God has said all along. Science says there is a beginning to our universe. It's not eternal. It was created. It came to be. God's uncreated. Everything else is created. Now, if Jesus created everything and Jesus himself was created, then Jesus would have had to have created himself, which is impossible, and that's the point Paul's trying to make, is that he wasn't created in the sense of born, he was created, he is over it. He is in the position over his creation. Does everybody kind of follow that? Okay. Let me give you, and this is one thing, as you read your Bibles, um, when you come across uh, a word or a phrase and you're not sure, if a lot of things are in the plain sense, but you gotta, we have to understand the context to get the meaning of the word. So, uh, and we know in, the, in, in language that a word doesn't have meaning without its context. So, for example, if I said to you, instead of saying, hey, I'm the firstborn, and you're like, okay, what does Dan mean by that? Okay, if I said to you, Oh, it was a beautiful run. Okay, could someone tell me what, what I mean by it was a beautiful run? You'd have to understand the context. If I'm talking about a marathon and drinking lots of water, you would think, oh, he's talking about a run, running a race. 
if I'm talking to you about the Blue Jays and they made it past the wild card series, right? To win it all, it was a beautiful run. If I'm talking to you in the context about fishing and lures and nets, then you're like, oh, run has to do with a fish run. If I'm talking to you about the world of fashion and, uh, and, and women's dresses, not that I'd ever do that in a million years, um, but, but then, then you're like, oh, he's talking about the run in a nylon. Okay. So do you understand? Words need a context. So if I come to this Bible and I look firstborn, oh, Jesus was created. Well, you've got to look at the surrounding context. And what Paul is saying, he created everything. And his point is, the firstborn, he is sovereign over it. He rules over it. Long explanation there. Okay, let's continue. Jesus is the creator. Notice what he says. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's the creator. And notice, you were created not only uh, by Jesus, but you were created for him. All of us here, that's our purpose in life. If you're not living your life for Jesus, you're missing the point of your existence. That sooner or later, you're going to realize that climbing up the ladder, you were climbing up the ladder that was against the wrong wall. Your life is not about a small little picture, but you're here now, die, and everybody forgets you. You're part of a bigger story. It's about Jesus. You were made through him and for him. You're, he's also, Jesus is also our sustainer. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things, again, he's preexistent. He wasn't born. He is before all things, and he sustains our universe. It's kind of like Jesus has got his finger, and he's spinning the basketball, spinning our world in the universe. One day, he's going to take his finger off of the basketball because he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's the one sustaining all things. This is just an interesting point for you that are scientists. I'm not. Uh, my wife is, but, and she'll correct me after this sermon if I'm wrong here. But um, physicists, they today are still trying to figure out the force uh, that is keeping the electric, uh, positive electric protons, which, which normally they repel each other, what's holding them together in the nucleus of the atom? Like the, the two protons, why are they not repelling? What's holding them together? And they refer to it as the stronger force. It's an invisible force that somehow it's stronger than this, the, what we know as the electromagnetic forces. And so they're like, what is it that, that's holding the atoms together? What is it that's holding our universe together? It's the one who's overseeing all of the laws of nature, Jesus. He is holding all things together. Uh, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. We have leaders in the church, but they're not the head. Jesus is. He is the beginning and the firstborn. Notice that word again, from among the dead. He's uh, a prototype in the sense that um, technically people uh, were raised before Jesus, but he's the first to be raised never to die again. Um, he continues, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Notice that word supremacy. He is the preeminent one so that he would be the one above all. Okay, Jesus is not one among many, uh, Muhammad and the fellow we know as Buddha or Moses and the law or Socrates, Plato. Okay, there's human history and all people that have ever lived. And then there's Jesus. He is supreme over them all. And then verse uh, 
14, uh, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So Jesus is fully God, but God is fully in Jesus. So one day when you see Jesus, you're not going to see part of God, a third of God. Oh, where's the Father? Where's the Holy Spirit? You're going to see God fully. He's fully, God is fully in Jesus um, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it's through Jesus that we are reconciled back to God. Uh, earlier, Paul just wrote about us being redeemed, bought again, okay, that he bought us back to God, that this, the wall has come down. We now have union with him. We've been reconciled with God. Um, and notice there, to reconcile all things to himself, some say, again, would point and say, oh, that teaches universalism, that everybody's going to be saved. No, Paul has the idea here, all of his created order is, is reconciled, is, is to be reconciled. Speaking of creation, and then he says this, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How are we in a relationship with God? How are we reconciled to him, brought back to him, redeemed? It's not through the teaching of Jesus. It's not through holding to the values and the ethics that Jesus taught. It's through his blood shed on a cross. And I will say this about Woodside, but any church that moves away from the cross is moving into heresy, false teaching. That's why at Woodside you will hear about the cross again and again and again because it's through the cross, through his blood shed on the cross for you, that you have a relationship with God. You've been reconciled and redeemed. So here are the points, uh, just again, uh, that Paul is making. Jesus is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the head of the church, the firstborn from among the dead, the supreme being, and the redeemer slash reconciler. And I want to say to you, if you are investigating the Christian faith and you're not sure what you believe, there's a little bit about what we believe about Jesus, but there's something called Alpha. It's a program we run twice a year at our church, and I would encourage you to go and find out more about Alpha. You can go to the welcome desk there. Um, it's such a wonderful program used in thousands of churches around the world, and in that uh, course class, uh, you learn about who Jesus is and about Christianity, and you're given an opportunity to ask lots and lots of questions. So Paul lifts up Jesus, his supremacy and his sufficiency. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. And now because of Jesus, he's going to talk about who they were and who we are in Christ. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Salvation is all of God, but there is a human responsibility. How they go together, we're not sure this side of eternity, but your life, you'll persevere. You're, it will give evidence of your faith. That's what he's trying to say there. This is the gospel that you have heard, that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul's using hyperbole. This gospel message is for every creature under heaven. It's for everybody. And that's what he's saying. And, but notice in that passage who you are. You are holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's who you are if you're a Christian. And I want to pause right here 
and talk about salvation for a few moments because maybe you're here and you say, oh, wait a second, I'm not sure if I'm really right with God. I'm not sure if I'm really holy in his sight. I'm not sure if I'm free from accusation like I sin. In fact, this week I sinned and um, am I really right? Um, so let's talk about salvation for a moment. You'll find three terms in the Bible uh, that speak to our salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, and they're the different tenses of our salvation. So justification, we, we are saved, we've been saved. Um, sanctification, we are being saved, present tense, and then glorification, we will be saved. Justification has to do um, with you are declared righteous before God. It has to do with you are free from the penalty of your sin. You're free from accusation. Sanctification has to do with becoming more like the person you are, more like Jesus. It has to do you're freer and freer from the power of sin that you're sinning less as you grow in Jesus. And then glorification has to do with your, one day you will be free from the presence of sin. There will be no more struggle with your sin. So what Paul is saying here, that if you, you are a Christian, he is saying that you are holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. He's talking about your position. That's who you are. Now, he's going to later talk to them about what being holy in his sight looks like. Don't lie to one another and all those things. That's your practice. And Christian growth is reducing the gap between who you really are and who you are right now. So the more that I'm kind, the more that I'm loving, the more that I'm forgiving, I'm growing in my faith, sanctification. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus and that gap gets smaller and smaller. So the point being this is that if you're a Christian, your salvation doesn't have to do with your behavior. You're already holy in his sight. Is there anybody, can everybody just stand, and don't do it, but could you stand up, do a little dance and say, I am holy before God. He sees me as perfect without blemish and I'll never, I'll never be judged for my sins. If that doesn't make you dance this Thanksgiving weekend, okay, you don't understand the good news, the gospel of Jesus. If you're a teenager, you're older, you're just like, are you, that's who I am, that's your identity. And when you live out of that identity, then your behavior and time will match. But if you're here and you're like, oh, I don't know if God likes me, I asked him into my life, but man, I still mess up, right? That's not your identity. You're not a sinner. There's no shame and blame. You are holy in his sight. Again, please do a dance this Thanksgiving outside of church, okay. <laughs> Paul says, because of what he's done, here's who you are. And then he then talks at the end of uh, our portion today about his life and about his suffering. Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Have, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul talks about his suffering. He's uh, he suffered his whole life as a Christian, and he says Jesus suffered for the church, for his people, so that they could hear the good news about him. He died on a cross. I'm participating in that so that you guys can, and others can hear the good news about Jesus. And I preached, uh, he's preaching, he talks about preaching the whole 
word of God to them, presenting the whole word of God in its fullness. And then he goes on to say this about it in verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you open up the word, you'll find mystery. And when we think mystery, we think of riddle, we think of something to be solved. But the biblical sense, the way Paul uses it, is mystery is full revelation. In your Bible, in the Old Testament, Jesus is not mentioned because there's not full revelation yet. There's a Messiah that is pointed to, that is mentioned. Paul looks back and he says, now we know who that Messiah is. It's Jesus, the mystery. God has fully revealed that it was Jesus, this one who died on the cross for us. And notice this, the mystery includes this Jesus who died on the cross, rose again the third day, that he is now in you that through his Holy Spirit. Today, if you are a Christian and you can remember the day of your salvation, right? 1975, it was on my bedside, 11.27 p.m. I asked Jesus into my heart. I really asked him to save me, come into my life. The moment you did that, his Holy Spirit came into you. Christ is in you. If you're here, and I'm not sure exactly when it was, sometime during high school or whatever, um, you may not remember the time, but there was a point where Jesus came into you through his Holy Spirit. Uh, We talk about, that's why we sometimes say, hey, invite Jesus into your heart. That's the idea of Christ coming into you. He's standing at the door of your heart, let him in. The greater theological, the more familiar theological truth is that we are in Christ. We are Christ ones. We belong to him. So we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And then Paul goes on to say this to to the believers in Colossae. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says, my life is about Jesus. He's not only in me, but he's working in me. Similarly with you, Christ wants to work in you. And notice, he is the one we proclaim. We're lifting up Jesus, and we're so glad you came to a faith in Jesus, but my passion, my goal, is that you would be fully mature in Jesus, become more like the person you were created to be. That's the goal of Woodside. We want people to come and say yes to Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I want to give my life to him, but then we want that person to grow and become more and more like Jesus and live on purpose for him in their life. So as we, uh, in just a moment, get ready for communion, I want to ask you three questions. First question, do you know who Jesus is? That Jesus, if he rose from the dead, every word he said is true, his word is true. Jesus is your creator. Jesus is your sustainer. You're alive today simply because of him. He is your redeemer, your reconciler. He belongs to be first and foremost in your life. Do you know what he's done for you? That 2,000 years ago, he died on a Roman cross for your sins so that you could be redeemed, bought back, so that you could be reconciled to him. Do you know what he's done for you? And then do you know who you are? That today you're not perfect. Today you still struggle. Today you need to, this week, maybe even confess sin if you sin. But before God, because of Jesus, you are holy in his sight without blemish. You are perfect and you are free from accusation. 
Oh, that those truths would go deep into our souls.